You're listening to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you conversations for the health of all things. In these special episodes, I am joined by guests on the show to explore how the osteopathic concept presents in their lives and learn about their personal and professional stories. Ranging from osteopathic physicians to those familiar with osteopathic treatment to those associated with osteopathic medicine in a variety of settings, these conversations provide new perspective on lighting the way for the path to best health. Please note that while I am a physician and may interview other physicians, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. We are back with a new season of Conversations for the Health of All Things, and I'm so excited to welcome today's guest. Dr. Rashmi Shram is a board-certified family physician and integrative health coach. She is also a certified meditation teacher. She helps high-achieving women who are feeling overworked and overwhelmed, let go of guilt, and tap into inner peace and joy so they can live the energetic and purposeful lives they deserve. We can't wait to hear more about that. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Tell us more about your story into medicine and into this health coaching experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually was born in India and lived there for um, 11 and a half years, immigrated to the States um, and immigrated actually to a very uh, small coal mining town in Southwestern Virginia. And that was, you know, a very interesting adolescent uh, phase for me as an immigrant and learned a lot of life skills and really developed a lot of resilience during those years. And began to have a real affinity uh, for medicine and just for helping people. And that's sort of how I got into medicine. And once I was in medical school, it, um, you know, began to occur to me that I really, number one, you know, right, you have to choose what you want to do. I knew I didn't want to be in the OR. I knew I didn't want to, you know, sort of be on the, on the, you know, very large, you know, kind of receiving end. And so I chose family medicine because I wanted to have those longitudinal relationships with my patients, which was so rewarding as I was seeing, in addition to really being able to work on helping people with prevention and lifestyle and being proactive with their health. Mm -hmm. And what did you find is perhaps a limitation in your traditional family practice that led you to seek more of the health coaching integrative medicine perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I um, I think I've always been sort of like a round peg trying to fit into a square hole or vice versa. And so all along, you know, I had been able to, in my private practice, incorporate some of these other, you know, holistic ideas that I had um, uh, learned along the way and had been sort of really feeling the constriction more and more as I expanded more and more in my traditional practice. And I think you know that better than anyone else. But, you know, um, the last straw really came when um, metrics, you know, began to really take uh, a hold, a really big hold over the last few years. And we really lost autonomy and being able to incorporate lifestyle. And so it wasn't an easy decision for me to leave. I'd been in my practice, you know, I've been practicing for 17 years. And so um, over the course of about nine months, I managed to be able to kind of, you know, extricate myself in a good way, leave my patients in really good hands. And um, that was about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. 
And let's look at that. So that nine month interval, right? That's our human gestational time. <laughs> Notice that maybe some of the likenesses there. And did you feel like you were, you know, delivering something new by the end of that interval? Oh my gosh, I love that so much. It felt really hard because, you know, for so many years I had developed these very, very deep and intimate bonds with so many patients and their families. And, you know, the flip side of that was um, that I was feeling the constriction even more at that point. And, and as you can imagine, just with social conditioning, a lot of my very well-meaning older patients would really kind of like make appointments to sit me down and say, honey, you do you know what you're doing? Because this sounds like a terrible idea. You shouldn't leave. You know, so I heard that like 10 times a day or so. Um, and so, yeah, I, that was definitely, that's a great analogy. A gestational period was really, um, but I, I would say my pregnancies were a lot easier than those nine times. <laughs> yeah, looking at that, and there's you know, different ones every time, but that's how we decide whether or not we can come back. So maybe this one, right, you're keeping that. So perhaps you'll stay in this, this space. <laughs> maybe no more new deliveries, but anything, anything is possible. So interesting that the depth of the relationship makes it so it's harder, right, to just, you know, submit to, right, these quick appointments. We might think when we know someone well, it gets quicker and easier. But when you know someone well, you know how important the connection is. And did you notice that, you know, that that knowing of them was actually you wanted to do them a service, you know, by being able to honor the relationship and the appointments in the way that worked for both of you? 100%. You hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Which was what also made it very hard because the, the, you know, the 15, 20 minute, or even the 30 minute, if I would, you know, contract for that, um, I still really wasn't getting through in 30 minutes. And so, I mean, what I do now is I schedule 60 minute appointments and I just luxuriate in it. Mm -hmm. And have you found any patients have moved with you? They did. Yeah, they did. And so I started as an integrative um, direct care practice and I still have that. Um, But as I began to notice the real transformation was happening in my coaching clients, which were separate from my patients, I've really started to put a lot of my attention and energy into my coaching practice. And so a lot of them have definitely come in to my program as well. Mm -hmm. And as we look at that, thinking about kind of mind, body, spirit in that first osteopathic tenet of unity, how do you see being able to address those through either or both or the combination of, you know, physician clinical practice or the coaching practice? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, as I finished up and I um, finished up my coaching training at Duke Integrative Medicine, and so it was a great scaffolding and framework that, um, believe it or not, was almost exactly the same as my Ayurveda training. Um, And so I'm trained and certified in Ayurveda lifestyle, which I sort of think of, you know, as the original lifestyle medicine, it's 5,000 years old. And a lot of those tenets are very, hold very, very true. Um, And the sister sciences, of yoga, yoga meaning union of mind, body, spirit, and Ayurveda, they're a brilliant system. And I found that when I was doing my integrative health coach training, you know, on a Venn diagram, there was like 80% overlap. And so I was able to, over the years, really cultivate the idea of being able to have a conversation about something that um, may have intimidated me 20 years ago, which is talking about spiritual well-being. And now I can do it pretty easily, uh, just having practiced for so long. Absolutely. And it's so nice when that happens, right? So this thing that you have been learning and practicing gets to support and be supplemented by this next thing that you're learning. And I found that I remember my first 
coach class, I walked in, I said, oh, good, right? You're just repeating back to me. I'll see by like tenants in a new way and giving me some tangible tools to put it into practice. And it was such a relief just to say, it's not here, learn this whole new thing. And there's no problem with that. Like learning new things is great, but to have some reinforcement and an expansion, I love that you use that word of what you already know and get to see it in new ways is so refreshing, I think. <laughs> How are you finding that differentiation? We often get this question, if you are in clinical practice and in coaching practice, are some people receiving both? Are they participating with you in both arms of that care? I know that was such a hard thing for me to really learn over the last year. So this is such a good question. I certainly have coached my patients um, for sure. And I continue to do that since I have those skills, why would I not use those skills? Um, but when I sign on my coaching clients, I make it very, very clear that I'm not going to be diagnosing or treating any of their problems. And that took me several months to really, uh, draw that line in the sand. And I know how important that is now to draw that line in the sand. And so I really, at this point, keep it very, very separate. And I think that really serves the patients and the clients very, very well. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious in this time of COVID and the pandemic, are you seeing all people or some people or no people in person? Is this I am actually seeing no people in person. <laughs> I'm all virtual right now, which has been a huge blessing for a multitude of reasons. But one of the reasons is that I'm able to coach people in, you know, all over the country. And that's been a real blessing for me. And tell me a little bit more about that. Certainly we think in osteopathic medicine about the importance of hands-on care, both for assessment and treatment, but for me as well, you know, my clinic was closed secondary to a PPE preservation order. And it called me to look at how I was doing things in a whole new way. And certainly there are times, right, when the clinical and physical exam is so paramount and we're seeing some of the challenges around that. But what have you noticed as this has opened doors, even in that family physician clinical exam space for how you engage with your patients? That's such a great question. And that's also such a great point as far as, you know, osteopathic manipulation. Um, uh, and so, you know, as far as energy transfer and feeling like I'm in the room with them, I, I feel it. You know, I really do. I was so surprised. I was so um, in, intimidated, actually, because I teach a couple of different kinds of meditation. And one of them is yoga nidra. And it's very much so about working in the subtle energy body. And, uh, you know, the first few cohorts, I would say, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, but really within the first one or two sessions, it was incredibly clear to me that we could, in fact, really sort of feel their presence. I mean, I joked with a client literally this morning, she was looking for a pen and I literally almost went, you know, here, here. And I'm like, Oh, I, that, I can't give you this pen. <laughs> and so, and the other thing too, Amelia noticed is, um, I, I, you know, we're sitting a lot closer together, right? Like I can see more of you, um, than if we, you know, if we were in a room together, I think we'd be a little bit farther apart. And so, uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot more facial expressions. So really trying to look at the positive side of this. Absolutely. And what I found too, is that being a hands-on physician the distance, you know, from Zoom actually opened up some spaces, right? So, so that space between expanded and the way which we engaged really was quite powerful. And that energetic engagement was almost really helpful because a lot of times I've been talking to patients about how they can have the power to shift things for themselves. And when they associate you doing all the work by way of hands-on treatment, there can be a barrier that actually was removed. And absolutely that energetic exchange. And I know you mentioned listening to some of the episodes, Dr. Jess Bell, who's been on twice now and looking at these new frontiers, you know, how we can really broaden the way in which we reach people. Are you working at all in groups? Are you finding that to be a benefit to you at all? Do you stay in the one-on-one -on -one space? 
I am. I'm doing some groups for sure. I do um, weekly yoga nidra sessions, um, and I also offer monthly and biweekly, whether it's meditation or yoga nidra sessions, to my members in both my coaching and my patient programs. And I think it's really helpful, especially uh, because they become interested in, in, in each other when they meet each other on these, you know, sort of during these sessions. And it's a, a, a small form of community. And I found that to be really helpful, although the bulk of my work is really one-on-one. Yeah, that is so nice. And at the power of the group and community and connection and just hearing other people's experiences has so much power in this time. Let's draw a bit on that. And you mentioned yoga and Ayurveda and the ways that you are practicing. How do you see the influence of your time in India moving through your practices? That's a great question. I um, was born in the 1970s. And by then, believe it or not, uh, because of, you know, kind of the, the British sort of uh, influence on India for so many years, um, the occupation, they had sort of um, really flipped into Western medicine style of doing things. And it was almost thought of as being passe or old fashioned, um, which is thankfully has reversed itself in the last, you know, couple of decades or so. Uh, But as my parents grew up, they didn't really necessarily practice yoga very much. They certainly, you know, um, practiced meditation and Ayurveda, but a lot of um, the medicinal qualities of Ayurveda were somewhat missing. I mean, certainly they all grew up um, understanding that food is medicine and how to use herbs and all of that. But, you know, as far as some of the bigger tenants, there was a lot of it missing because it was it was deemed to be less quality, right? And so, but I did certainly pick up a lot of my meditation as normal um, kinds of ideas as a child, though I certainly don't think I practiced as a child, but, um, and, and it sort of drew me back in a, in a very kind of visceral way uh, as I was going through, you know, as a physician, just feeling just discontent, Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And I hear in there, too, we talk about the inherent self-healing capacity and that with which we already have, you know, and we sometimes just need to tap into and seeing that in that cultural way, in that kind of historical way, the ties and and there has to be some influence right, of leaving a place at 11 and a half. What an interesting age, you know, and all that's happening transitionally in our lives at that time to call that back forth. And did you see that kind of this that was always there that finally got to be opened up again? Absolutely. It was always, always there. Yes. Yeah. And as you share that with your patients, what's the receptiveness to bringing those practices forward? You know, I try to meet them where they are, right? So now, obviously, if they're coming to me, they already understand, uh, you know, the context in which they're entering into. But um, in sort of a traditional, uh, you know, everyone gets a turn at my schedule type of thing. I mean, over the years, I was known as a more holistic you know, sort of uh, physician, but certainly there were some that just um, didn't, you know, just weren't ready. And at that point, you, you can only do what you can do and hope hope to maybe plant a little seed that might bloom at a different time. But truth is, I think more often than not, people were very, very open and receptive and were very interested in it. Yeah, so encouraging. So you alluded to some different points where there were some challenges in your work as a physician and the one that led you to this gestational interval and the delivery of your new practice. Were there times before or maybe in retrospect you see, right, this cycling of what we might think of as burnout or challenges in the practice of medicine? 
Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I think over and over again, I felt um, like we really were only using one out of 50 tools, you know, and the big hammer of big pharma a lot of times. Um, And it really became more and more frustrating for me, the expectations of, um, of, 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 you know, throwing out six or seven prescriptions in a 15 minute time period and running out and documenting for another 15 minutes. It was, it was, it's, it's insanity. I mean, I know it happens all the time, but that was a a real frustrator, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. And let's look into that. So you mentioned helping high achieving women who are feeling overworked and overwhelmed and how do we know, right? What's an appropriate level because medicine in some ways, right. is supposed to be hard, right. There's hard work. And then there's kind of uncomfortable hard work, you know, and, and I, I can talk to Dr. Una who we share a mutual respect and care for, you know, how do you see that identifying it? You know, what is too much? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think of it as having a vision for where you want to go. And if this work is propelling you closer to that vision, then that's that makes sense, right? I mean, you and I, we've worked really hard um, to get into medical school, certainly during medical school, during residency. And it's because we had that vision of, you know, we were, we wanted to be really good doctors. And, it, and at that point, a lot of times that I never felt overworked. I know I was overworked looking back. I mean, that was before the 80 hour work week that, you know, that I went through residency in med school. Um, And yes, I felt a little tired, but I was never um, sort of feeling overworked and overwhelmed more so than I would have expected at that point. And so it really wasn't until um, I think the complexities of life um, took over and uh, by all external expectations, there was very great success. If if anyone had looked at me, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and I mean, certainly now as well, I'm grateful for that. You know, two kids, um, suburban house, dog, uh, job that pays really well. So, you know, by all means of the imagination, it's, you know, looked like a pretty, you know, perfect success story. And in many ways it was, but if the ultimate goal is happiness, I I just wasn't there. I was, I was glimpsing it and I was sort of postponing it until this next vacation or that weekend or whatever. And I wanted to live in a different way. Mm -hmm. And in coaching, we talk about the the capacity we have to change how we're feeling about any situation by looking at what we're thinking about it and not requiring some of those external pieces to change. How do you know that, right? How do you know you've reached that point when you know, it's not just about me changing my mindset, but actually, yes, it is time to be in a different situation, system or otherwise. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, And I kind of go back to, you know, um, Byron Katie, some of her work um, and those four questions. And so if I, those always seem to work for me. So (laughs) how do I know, you know, is it true? How do I definitely know it's true? What's the opposite of that? What would I be without this thought? And if it passes that sort of test, the work test for me, then, then I know that um, it, you know, I can no longer just blame my environment. I need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's so helpful. And I try to remind anyone with whom I'm working or interacting that there's always choices there, right? So we can change what we think about it. Sure. And sometimes we need to advocate for some systems change. Absolutely. Right. And throughout the course of medicine, like you said, there's some insanities at play here. And then sometimes it is simply no longer compatible, right? And it's okay to leave, you know, and I think sometimes we get caught in that trajectory or we're on those railroad tracks and we think we better just keep going because we said we were going to. And do you find as you're working with these high achieving women, either 
having them give themselves permission or holding space, right, for permission to be granted to do that, to leave or change? For sure, for sure. But a lot of times, right, for me, I didn't leave because I was frustrated. And it was a a big point for me. I left not because I hated my job or that I was frustrated. It was because I knew there was an expansion that that I could offer, that I wasn't able to use my full potential where I was. And it was, it came from a place of love and peace. And I left in that same way and the practice is vibrant and growing. So, um, we try to do the same thing for them. If they feel like whether it's a marriage that they think they need to leave or a job or, a place, it really, they need to heal themselves first so they can make grounded decisions. Mm-hmm. I hope everyone's listening. It really takes that in because this question comes up a lot, right? So if I feel better, why would I go? But it's you feel better so that you can, right? Go in peace and go in love and it's better for all. You know, and when I talk about physicians in health systems, you know, sometimes there might be this hesitancy. Well, if they're feeling better and they want to leave, but someone who departs, right, from that space of wholeness, and happiness and granting, you know, blessings all around as they depart is a much different experience, right? Than leaving out of pure frustration, like you said. And thank you for painting such a beautiful picture of how that can be. And so as you look at where you would like to go, you know, heading forward, and I'm sure the expansion is continuing, what are the next steps? Is it more of what you're doing? Are there some new pieces at play or in the works? Always. We always have to grow, right? And so I am hoping to put together a course on Ayurveda and, you know, Yoga Nidra as well and incorporate that into my coaching program, have some modules that play with that. Um, I'm really constantly enrolling new um, clients into my coaching program. And I mentioned just, you know, being able to teach meditation has been um, actually hugely therapeutic for me as well and seems to make a huge difference for the folks who, you know, for the students who come. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned components that really sound like the osteopathic tenets, the mind, body, spirit. And I wouldn't attempt to bring, you know, many thousands of years of historical teachings and practices into bullet points, but at the same time, what does inspire you to want to bring these forward into courses, the Ayurveda practices and yoga? How do you see that inspiring you and saying, I really want to share this, you know, with the world in a new way? Absolutely. I think it's not just inspirational, but empowering. And as people start to recognize that they can tap into inner peace, that it's been there all along, and their birthright is to be happy um, and not just live kind of moment to moment, but also, you know, be satisfied and feel contentment and understand that they have a lot more control than perhaps some of the learned helplessness that traditional medicine may, you know, not intentionally, but certainly imparts on both physicians and and patients. And so I really want to shed that learned helplessness and really come into full empowerment, into their full power. That's really my inspiration for that. Wow, that's amazing. And I love that you have energetic in here, energetic lives. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Because we might have all different perceptions of what an energetic person might look like. What do you mean when you put that into how you help others? That's right. So what I tend to see in folks who show up and really are ready to be coached is one of their first things is I just don't have any more energy left to play with my kids. I don't have any more energy left to do the things that I want to do because I am just so done by the time I'm finished with my chores or whatever. And by the time we're finished in 12 weeks, it was one of the major points that they were all telling me about. And so what that might look like might be, for example, I just 
talked to a client yesterday and she was talking about how her 10-year-old had had a five-day break and every one of those days she had planned something really fun that also happened to be really fun for her that included things like sledding and tubing and things that she noticed she just would have shut down, you know, um, a couple of months ago because she just felt so frustrated. And I think that has to do with a clearing of some of the mind chatter that makes space for energy to flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And noticing too, when is it helpful, right? We have all these thoughts, you know, that can help guide us. How do we filter? You know, how do we choose which thoughts to tune into? And we think about a meditation, right? Kind of letting the thoughts move through. How do you advise around that, right? Which ones are actually building that energy and capacity and which are depleting it? Oh, yeah. I love this question because it always comes up. The first thing after we go through a meditation teacher, you know, kind of student interchange, and I go back and say, what questions do you have? One of the most common things is how do I control my thoughts? And the the answer is you don't, you know, depending on who you ask, there's somewhere between 60 and 80,000 thoughts um, a day that we have and about 80 to 90% of them are recycled. And so, <laughs> um, so that's a thought every 1.2 seconds. And so, yes, you're exactly right though. You know, the, the, the tenant with meditation is, you know, we, we don't follow the thought. We watch it go by as if there are clouds in the sky. And so which ones do you notice are the good ones and which ones do you notice are not the good ones and how do you hold on to which ones? And I think it's a really simple test, which is, you know, does it have to do with expansion or constriction? You know, that's really the big test. And or you could say love or fear. And you really could take any one of those thoughts and put it into those two buckets. And you really want to. Um, nourish the ones that have to do with expansion and love and not necessarily punish these other ones, but just not give them as, as much attention, right? Because our energy flows where attention goes. So why don't we pay attention to the love and expansion? Mm-hmm. And that's curious. And I love that you gave that other bucket a moment, right? And is there ever a role, like what is the role for fear or for constriction that you know, comes up? And so you might look to the purpose and purposeful, you know, as in your statement as well, do they serve a role for us? Absolutely. Right. I mean, we have to protect ourselves. Uh, They're there for a reason and they're usually dominant for a reason because it helps us survive. And so, yes, of course, you know, we, if we're having just a really down day or a down week, it's okay. It's okay. We need to give ourselves grace. So I do think there's a role for them because why, how could we appreciate all of the goodness and the, you know, and the expansion if we don't know what constriction really is. So I think, you know, really the goal is to be able to balance those and have um, an emotional balance between the two of them. And that's such a helpful perspective just to know they're a reference point, right? So we now know expansion and love because we see their counterparts here and to be able to integrate them. Such a fascinating opportunity. As you mentioned, all these practices, could you share with us what the structure, you know, for the function in your life might be for how you put these together for your own health? Yeah, absolutely. So every morning I wake up and um, I do, you know, just a like a 10, 15 minute yoga flow. And then I meditate for 30 minutes. Um, and then I go on about my day. And at the end of my day, I also meditate for usually 20 or 30 minutes. Um, but, you know, generally somewhere between seven to eight or 9 PM, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And so I try, you know, I really do meditate. That's one of my um, non-negotiables. Um, you know, exercise, of course, is in there somewhere, but I get to plug it in wherever I can, depending on my days. And I almost never miss that. But um, but the meditation is a non-negotiable for me. 
Yes. And how did you make that commitment to yourself and uphold it? Oof, it took me years. <laughs> it took me years. I, it was pretty simple at the end, like most things are. I started to recognize where was I the most irritable and like the most anxious and the most worried and where did I suffer the most insomnia? And it was always the times when I had let my meditation practice go. Um, and when I was, you know, when I'm meditating, I'm more connected. I'm in, more in tune. I am just happier. I'm more content, which means my bucket fills over and and it flows into my family, the people I'm working with, the people I'm interacting with. And that's important for me. And so that's really, it took me years. And I'm not kidding you. It took me years to be able to get here. And just like every habit, if we are not nourishing it in some way, it certainly can go away in a heartbeat. So it's it's not that every morning I wake up and I'm like, I'm going to go meditate. But it's something that I've committed to doing, just like, you know, your commitments Cause I really just want to go and drink espresso and sit and look out the window. Now, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's actually quite encouraging because we might think, Oh, you just did. And you know, it was automatic, but to know that there was time and some struggle and some recommitment, right. Each and every time, like it is okay. Yes, I am going to do this today again, you know, and that can be helpful and encouraging for those who are trying to pick up any kind of practice, you know, and put it into play. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. We're going to ask our final question here and then find out where everyone can find you to work with you. We've heard a lot of opportunities and how would you say that you see yourself for the health of all things? How would I say I see myself for the health of all things would be um, as a conduit really for anyone who's ready to tap into um, their highest selves, whether it's mind, body, or spirit. And that's, uh, that would be my highest honor in, in, in my life actually. Oh, that's fantastic. And such a great visual too, to picture that. Thank you. Absolutely. And where should people reach out to find you and work with you now that you've said you have this more national reach, you know, with the opportunities of virtual engagement? Yeah, I've got my website, which is optimalwellnessmd.org. I'm also active on social media and the handles is the same, which is just um, Dr. Rashmi Shram. There's just a dot after the DR. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me and for the fantastic work that you're doing. I look forward to seeing how it continues to expand. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Osteopathic Life, Conversations for the Health of All Things. Please take a moment to like, rate, and review the podcast. And if you would like to be featured as a guest or know someone you'd like to nominate as a guest for an episode, please let me know at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com. Visit the website at thisosteopathiclife.com or visit me on Instagram and Facebook at This Osteopathic Life. Thank you so much for listening.